if the Lord would have come during that song. <laughs> Anyways, praise God. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. Because we have two glorious testimonies to hear at the end of our service, we're going to take this sermon and um, divide it into two sections, what we would normally handle in one. If you can join me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll begin uh, this morning in verse 11, try to make it through verse 15, but if we don't, it's okay. God willing, we'll have another Lord's Day to continue our study uh, through this book uh, together. So let's read these verses together. As our hearts have been encouraged and prepared in song and ministering to one another, enticing one another to love and good deeds, all the wonderful aspects of corporate worship we have the privilege of enjoying every week. Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. We are not again committing ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart or if we are beside ourselves it is for God if we are of sound mind it is for you for the love of Christ controls us having concluded this that one died for all therefore all died and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help as we study this immediate context in light of its chapter in this book and practically apply it in particular to our hearts as the Corinthian believers would have understood it and applied it to theirs. So we need your Spirit's help as we do this. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I wanted to publicly thank too here before we dive in, Seth Kulin. I know he had hours and hours and hours of pre-preparation for the development of this app. So Seth, wherever you are, thank you. Uh, I remember those hours and those days, and I'm sure you do too. And I know none of those folks weren't mentioned. But I mentioned people. The Bible says to honor those who honor God. So I mentioned people uh, for God's glory, and they know that. Is God has gifted them to serve in particular ways and, and they're willing to do that as we've sung already this morning. In order to gain uh, more clear context for today's context, let's look at the end of last week's context. Let's back up into verse uh, number nine here. And let's talk about the believer's aspiration again. Uh, what is the believer's aspiration? Understanding the conflict that we're enduring, understanding the glory of the coming promise, right, of that new spiritual body that we discussed last week and all of its glory and all of its opportunity. Understanding that, what, what's the response of the believer that we saw last week? We have an ambition, don't we? Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home, that means at home in this tent, this temporary dwelling place, or absent, that means in our intermediate body in the presence of the Lord, we have an ambition to please him. I find it very interesting that that's the aspiration of the believer. 
it tells us here what we're going to be busy doing when we're in the presence of God after we breathe our last here. Isn't it fascinating? Our goal in a glorified body is going to be to please him. And juxtaposed to that is for me to live is still Christ. We are to have that aspiration to live for him here and to be pleasing to him. Now, we're going to set this text up and again, finish it the next time we're together. Multiple times in the scriptures, the Lord gives us the opportunity to know what it means to please him. For those of you who are newer to Christ, when you trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to let you know that you're eternally pleasing to God. If you have a really good spiritual day, God doesn't love you anymore. And if you have a really bad spiritual day, God doesn't love you any less. Do you understand that? I think those of you who are newer to Christ, you need to own that. Okay? God loves you because you were placed into the righteousness of his son the day you trusted Christ as your Savior. And you are forever declared righteous. As a result of that, being indwelt by the Spirit of God, he gives you the compulsion to become more and more like the Savior who washed away your sin and forgave you. The Spirit of God indwells you and your body's his temple, and he is there to support the character of the Son and to compel you to grow in his likeness. We call that practical Christian growth. In Christ, you have a permanent eternal position as a child, and now we're going to grow up into Christ practically. So there's multiple places in the New Testament where Paul or other authors mention what it means to please God. And they're all in their own immediate context, and what we're going to find out is pleasing God in this context is going to have its own unique application. When I've studied this text before, I've had it preached to me before, it may have been mentioned, I don't recall it. It may have been studied, I don't recall it. But understanding what it means to please God in this immediate context is incredibly profound because that has eternal consequence to it, okay? So if, you're, if you take notes, or even if you don't, I want to just rifle through other contexts in the New Testament where authors talk about pleasing God, Okay? because they're particular in their own context, as I've already said. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Those of you that own your Bibles a long time, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Give yourselves as a living sacrifice, which is well-pleasing to God. So presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice pleases God. Romans chapter 14 and verse 18. When we live to avoid causing a hypersensitive brother, a weaker brother, if you've known your Bibles for a long time, you're familiar with that term. When we live to avoid being a stumbling block to the weaker brother, we're pleasing God. Living aware that around us are believers that according to that context are more spiritually hypersensitive about some things uh, I live to please God by not causing them to stumble. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10. That context talks about separating from evil around us in our culture. And then walking as children of light pleases God. For the fruit of the light consists in all godliness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to God. So it's not only a position that we're in as light versus darkness, it's a process of what we learn while we live in that position. 
always learning what it means to please the Lord. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18 in a worship context. Paul says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied. He's speaking of the Philippian offering taken for him so that he could continue to do his evangelistic church planting mission. So the Philippians would have given that in the context of worship because that's what God's people do. All right? They give back to the Lord what he's given to them unto eternal purpose, eternal mission. So he's giving thanks to the Lord and thanks to the Philippian people for providing for him. He says, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. It pleases God when you and I sacrificially and generously give to Great Commission purposes in the context of worship. It pleases God. Okay? Colossians chapter 3 and verse 20. Yes, kids, it's, it's pleasing to God when you obey your parents. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul talks about the Thessalonian spirit-filled compulsion to walk and to please God according to the commandments that they had been given. And in that immediate context in chapter 4 that goes on into understanding what pleasing God means practically, that means walking in sexual purity pleases God. Walking away from the the pattern of the world, which is to live. They, 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 they live and they breathe to practice sexual immorality. And Paul says, no, those who are born again and governed by the Spirit, they, they live to please God by practicing his will, which is abstaining from any type of sexual intimacy outside the context of marriage. In verses 3 through 8, that's certainly the explication and application of that. In verses 9 through 11, there's three other particular ways there in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we find we, we please God. And, and we do that practically. It's real simple there. Mind your own business. <laughs> Don't make issues out of non-issues. And make sure you maintain a good work ethic in the community, in the vocation, in the profession in which God's called you to be involved with. All right? It pleases God that we love God and we demonstrate our love for God in those particular ways in that context. And of course, go over with me to Hebrews 13. Hold your finger here in 2 Corinthians 5 and let's go over to Hebrews 13 and look at a, another way, a final way for us this morning on how we understand what it means to please God, okay? In a practical sense. Hebrews chapter 13 and let's look at verse 20 and 21 together. The author of Hebrews, as he concludes this book in his benediction, a benediction of prayer, that's what a benediction is, right? Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, speaking of Christ's resurrection, through the blood of his eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lots of practical applications for the, for the recipients of this particular letter to the Hebrews.
for us this morning, I think it's a good summation text of all that pleases God. The author of the book of Hebrews is praying to the Lord here that the people of God in that church that received this letter, uh, in the churches that received this letter, um, primarily Messianic Jews, that they would take all that is the revealed word of God and seek to honor it in the way they live their lives, being children of God in their growth of growth in Christ-likeness. So folks, if we go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, the context is very, very clear. The pre-context of last, to this week's context, but the ending of last week's. There's, therefore, we also have as our ambition. And the grammar here is very clear. It's, this, is, this is what we are always having as our ambition. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious for godliness. A new believer once told me, now that I'm saved, I want to be as zealous for God as I was for the devil before I got saved. Having godly aspirations is natural and spiritually healthy for any spirit-filled believer. In the New Testament era, we ought to be as ambitious about pleasing God in gospel pursuits as we are in achieving a new home, climbing a corporate ladder, as it were, your place of business, or achieving that next degree, or even playing your sport. Why? Well, it's just the right thing to do, but my friends, we, we live in an ambitious world, don't we? The world is ambitious about everything that the God of this world is dominating right now. But God created us to be ambitious creatures. That's in the dominion mandate, clear back to creation week, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over the earth. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And we're certainly glad that musicians do that. God wants you to be ambitious about doing that which he's created you to do. Practically, vocationally. And here this morning, spiritually, not only in all of these contexts that we've already discussed, but in the particulars we'll get to this morning in our context. What we know is that sin just affected the trajectory of our ambition. So God outlines throughout the Bible in narratives, imperatives, and descriptions and principles what righteous ambition is. Why? Verse 10, remember last week? For we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is not going to be a time to have you be individually judged by Jesus Christ as to your morality or immorality. Sin's been judged at the cross. Okay? That's done and over with. The Bema seat is mentioned several times in the New Testament scriptures. We'll kind of highlight those real quickly here so that you can have your hearts settled that this is going to be a wonderful and glorious time for the spirit-filled, faithful saint in the local church, which is going to be the majority of you, hopefully all of us. We'll hear that, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But what we're going to be judged to in this particular context, how we please God, is how we function in the local church in a spirit-filled fashion unto gospel perpetuation, unto the spread of 
the good news of Jesus Christ. How you lived your gospel testimony before each other and in our community. And the flow of this whole context all the way down into early chapter 6 is going to demonstrate that for us. In particular, being pleasing to God right here has everything to do with how you live the gospel before each other and before men who need Jesus. So when we stand before the Lord someday, that's what we'll be judged for according to this particular context. The person who's going to be judging you at that moment is the Savior who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's the Lamb of God that came away to take away the sin of the world. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the King of all the earth. Right? He's the Jesus of Philippians chapter 2 who thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself a form of a servant was made in the likeness of man so he could do what? Be obedient unto the death of the cross. His whole existence is about gospel purpose. And so certainly the judge of all the earth on our Bema seat day is certainly going to be concerned about how you lived his gospel intentions on this earth before one another and before people in our community who knew Jesus. Certainly he's going to be concerned. Right? He gave up his life, gave us life, so we could live his life. And that's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. As individuals and as people, okay? So yes, all eight contexts we highlighted earlier already detail what it means to be pleasing to God as we go on Christ's likeness, but we'll stand before the Lord for this contextual purpose as well. 1 Corinthians 13, if you want to write that down, we're not going to go there, verses, verse 13. Um, and then 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 4 and verse 5 mentions the judgment seat of Christ or the beam of seat. And mentions to us there, that again, the character of our service in the church will be revealed as to faithfulness and as to motive. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. We find here the Lord is deeply interested in helping us make sure we don't become the stumbling block, as I've already said to another brother, in matters of conscience. So what's the bema seat? The bema seat in, in Greek culture was the place where orations were made, public speeches. It's the place where authorities proclaimed municipal decisions. It's the place where Olympic athletes were awarded their wreaths of victory. It was a public place of discernment and judgment. The Bema Seat will be a place for us of reward and recognition as well. There's nothing wrong for believers to live for reward. Nothing wrong with that at all. We're going to hand those rewards right back to the Lord and worship him for all of eternity anyway, but it's okay as a spirit-filled believer to want to walk and to please God and to, and to be rewarded for your faithfulness, for taking advantage of God's grace to, to live faithfully. But in our context today, when we come down and move towards verse 11 
in the following verses, we have an explanation here of what it means to be pleasing God in verse 9 that will be judged for in verse 10. And so in verse 11, we move from that which is an aspiration by way of introduction to a realization now in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That's the realization, knowing the fear of the Lord. Paul says here, even though we're not before the beam of seat yet, we can know what that's going to be like now. And the grammar here tells us this is something that we are to daily, consistently be knowing. Therefore, as you are always knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord here is, is, is not the type of fear that uh, that's, uh, makes you scared to death. It's not the type of fear that you have uh, waking up from a bad dream. It's not the kind of fear that you have um, sliding on the ice and, and facing uh, <laughs> a not-so-invited accident, right? It's not the fear that you have of an intruder into your house. It's not the fear that you have going uh, to Cedar Point and taxiing up the hill and dive-bombing down. It's not that kind of fear. The fear that Paul's talking about here is a reverential awe. As a matter of fact, it's the same kind of fear that the Apostle John describes in Revelation chapter 1. Would you go there with me real quick? Again, hold your finger here. And, and let's, let's look at this, the nature of the fear. Okay? Revelation chapter 1, um, verse 17 John writes, when I saw him, that's Jesus Christ, that's the judge, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, what? Don't be afraid. So he's fearful, but he's not afraid. This is a reverential awe. And Jesus said, I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and to Hades. Therefore, write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will be taking place after these things. As for the mystery, the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the Apostle John getting revelation of the revelation. This is the Lord Jesus Christ giving him that revelation. And this is his holy response to being in the presence of God and hearing the presence of Christ and hearing his message. It's a holy, reverential, awe-inspiring, humbling moment. So go back to 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, knowing this fear, knowing that there is an unavoidable and imminent date for all of us individually to stand before Christ, and understanding that the way we live our lives is of great concern to the Savior, particularly as to how we live our lives among one another and live for gospel purposes in our community according to this context, Having this realization, we're responsible next for a persuasion. So there's an aspiration by way of introduction, a realization, and then here there's an obligation to persuade. There's a persuasion. What does he say here in verse 11? 
Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, within the immediate context, this would be primarily unsaved, merely religious folks in the church of Corinth. It's a secondary application here. But if you understand it within its immediate context, what's pleasing to God is persuading people of unbelief right inside the church of Corinth. Now, who are the unbelieving people inside the church of Corinth? You've got to go back to chapter 2 and 3 and 4 to discover that. These were the religious hucksters. Remember, we preached through that. These were the people that were professing people but still claiming salvation by works. These were the internal legalists. These were the wolves in sheep's clothing. Right? These were the performance-driven Christians who knew nothing of saving grace, so they knew nothing of growing grace. Therefore, knowing your particular gospel responsibility to please God, understanding imminent judgment before him, we persuade men. And then he's going to describe to us here what that looks like. So as we move through the context, we'll understand that more and more. And the first way that's done is through the next part of verse 11, through a manifestation. So he goes from aspiration, real estate, realization, persuasion, and now manifestation. What does it say in verse 11? We are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. God knows Paul's heart here. He's already discussed that with us in previous verses in our study of this book. His heart's on open display, so no matter how crazy people think he is, how off-base people think he is, God knows his heart. And not only that, but men have seen the change in his life. God knows his heart, and he's presented his life to men to appeal to their consciences as to whether they're really born again or not because you don't have a gospel unless you have a changed life. Because the gospel check, the gospel affects your mouth. It affects your eyes. It affects your taste. The gospel affects everything about us. It changes the way we live. A lot of people say, well, I got saved so I didn't go to hell. I think there's going to be a lot of people splitting hell wide open saying, I got saved so I wouldn't go to hell because they never had a changed life. Paul's saying here, I had a changed life, and that's the demonstration of the spirit and power of God in my life when Jesus saved me. You saw how I changed in the way I lived. And so I hope, I hope your consciences at least realize that. This is what it means to be pleasing to God for gospel purposes right inside the church. In every church, I think there's always going to be a remnant of unbelieving, professing people. And the way you live, the way you worship, they're watching, and it ought to be convicting to their conscience. Wow, my life's not like their life in Christ. What's different about them? Even in worship. But we are made manifest to God. Again, the whole of our being is openly and completely known to God because of Christ. We have nothing to hide when it comes 
to the condition of our souls because we've been made new in Christ and we've died to selfish, simple, sinful ambition in him and in Christ. I'm spiritually complete before God. And, and again, I hope our consciences are made manifest to each other. The truth of what we are before God in Christ is what we've not only taught to you, but lived before you, and you've seen the reality of the fruit of God's transforming, miraculous grace in Christ, even in our personal lives. And then he goes on to remind the faithful, believing people of the church that there are some distractions. There are some distractions to living this spiritually changed life on open display before the unbelief in the church and before the majority of the believing in the church. And this pleases God. Let's look at those distractions in verse 12, and we'll stop there this morning by introducing these distractions, and then we'll have our baptisms, okay? Paul says here, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you occasion to be proud of us the phrase proud of us there means not proud of um, their personal achievements, but proud of their faithfulness that's been brought about by the grace of God in the way they live. Be proud of the way we live. Someone asked me this week, how do I really know the nature of discipleship at Grace Church and, and what that really entails? I said, you know what, we probably just need to have a couple of weeks where we just talk about that. But this is one certain aspect of it, is you're studying with each other, now through the new app, right? If you're studying with each other, right, you're learning how to live in a way pleasing to God from each other. And that's okay. That's okay as long as it's biblical. That's okay. Growing in Christ's likeness is supernaturally, naturally normal. We call that be holy, for I am holy. One day we'll be like him. Right? We'll see him like he is. I, it's a long way from that, but well, maybe not. But in our growth, we feel like that, right? But there's some distractions to that, and it's right here. describes it negatively here first and it's, and it's powerful because he says we are not again commending ourselves to you. Go back to chapter number 2 or chapter number 3 real quick. Do you remember the uh, people inside the church that were committing themselves to each other? Are we beginning verse 1 to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of recommendation to you for, or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. Remember that? This is what he's talking about here. A distraction to gospel progress inside the church are those people who love to be praised. They love human accolade. They love to be noticed. And may I say this? They need to be noticed because they want to be noticed. And they come in all shapes, sizes, and flavors, my friend. But anyone who's constantly trying to distract 
Attention away from gospel progress within and with outside the church, who's within the church, to distract attention to themselves, could be unsaved, and certainly, if they're saved, not spirit-governed. Think about that. Live-streaming or not. These are the distractions to what it means to please God unto gospel progress in this situation. Right? There's another one here, commending ourselves to you, but giving an occasion to be proud of us so that you'll have an answer for those who, what? Take pride in appearance and not in the heart. Is it possible even in a modern day church to be that person that takes pride in form over substance? I think it's a stage four cancer of evangelicalism globally, my friends. People are mandating form over substance, mandating style over substance, mandating look over substance. If we don't look this way, sound this way, act this way, then something's wrong. And Paul says, no, that's a distraction to gospel. The nature of the gospel, it's a distraction to progressive sanctification, and it's certainly a distraction to people recognizing the heart and the changed lives that really are all around us and how they're growing in Christ-likeness. In verse 13, certainly the criticisms of men can be a distraction to gospel progress. For if we are beside ourselves, Paul says, it is for God, and if we are of sound mind, it's for you. Remember back in the, in the, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26, verses 22 to 44, 24, Paul was uh, really much called, he was pretty much called insane. As a matter of fact, he was. He said, people were saying, you're nuts. You're insane. And that's what this Greek word means here. If we are beside ourselves, if religious people who haven't been transformed by grace are going to call us insane because we have a radically transformed life and we're sticking to it in a convictional way, then praise God. If I'm nuts, it's for God. And if it comes across to you as common sense, then that's for you to follow to learn from. Okay. That pleases God, right? If we understand the flow of the context. So those are the distractions. So what seemed insane to some at Corinth was realized as settling truth to others. It is what it is. And we'll continue on next week as we progress through this context as to the nature of what it means to please God again as to gospel purpose and gospel spread. It's going to be so exciting as we continue on through this chapter, okay? All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simplicity of your word, the help of your spirit to understand it. I, I trust it made sense this morning, Lord. Um, help us to take it and walk with it and meditate on it and do our best to help each other live it uh, day to day. In Christ's name, amen.